In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. My old uh, seminary classmate, Barb Lundblad, uh, is an ordained Lutheran minister, a very gifted preacher, who went on to actually teach homiletics in a variety of seminaries across the country. Um, I met her in New Haven, but she hails originally from a little town in Iowa. Can anything good come out of Iowa, I asked. She's from a little town in, uh, in Iowa called Gowrie. I suspect there are more people living on her city block now than, than there were in that small town. But I still remember decades later her talking about what life was like in, in that little town, especially Saturday nights. There was a roller skating rink in town, which on Saturday night became dances. Uh, teen hops is what they were called back then. Barb was all of 13 or 14 years old, so she wasn't old enough to drive herself. So her parents would have to drive her into town on Saturday night. Uh, they were a bit apprehensive. They weren't sure that dancing was really appropriate for a good Lutheran girl, but they wanted her to be happy. So they chauffeured her into town, and they convinced her uh, to open the car door, the rock music blaring through the walls uh, of the roller skating rink. You'll have a good time, her mother would say to her every week. This was the weekly ritual. Barb says, I would look for somebody I knew who was going towards the door so I wouldn't have to go in alone. Finally, she says, I would get up enough courage to get out of the car and walk towards the sound of the music, though I usually looked over my eyes and, and uh, looked to catch one of my parents' eye to see if maybe I could hop back in the car. Once inside, she says, um, I would scour the room looking for my friends so I wouldn't have to stand against the wall all alone. Is this beginning to sound at all familiar to anyone um, other than me? But finding my friends didn't help much, she said, because most of them didn't want to stand anyway. They knew how to dance, and they would dance with each other even if somebody didn't ask them to dance. The reason for this, Barb said, went all the way back to sixth grade. At the beginning of the school year, she had developed a case of whooping cough, and so she missed the first six weeks of class. And during that time, all of her friends taught themselves how to dance on a concrete platform behind the gymnasium. Now, I know that there are some of us here who are good dancers. And I also know that there are some of you who are and have always felt that you are six weeks behind everybody else on the dance floor. So the most important thing to me, Barb continued, was to find somebody else who wouldn't be dancing very much. Uh, the two of us could then stand together against the wall, trying to talk to each other over the loud music and trying to pretend that we really didn't mind standing there while everybody was moving feverishly though I could remember being asked to dance many times, each week, it seemed, was a new struggle. Maybe I look worse than I did last week. 
Maybe the person who asked me to dance last week will remember how bad I was. Barb says, I always hoped for a slow dance, not because of the romance that it promised, but because of the fear that it avoided. I seldom feel more ungraceful, she said, than when I am dancing, except perhaps when I am waiting to see if anyone will ask me to dance. It's that same feeling of emptiness. You know, the feeling like you're standing alone at a crowded party with all the laughter going on around you, being at the edge of a lively conversation, but not really being a part of it. That kind of loneliness that feels so much worse than just being alone in your own room. And of course, that loneliness is not limited to dances when you're 13 or when you're at a party. It is probably a part of all of our lives. Now, being asked to dance may seem like nothing to really worry about. It's a small problem on the world stage, very insignificant in terms of all the tragedies that have afflicted us uh, over the last weeks and months. But it may be that experiences that we discount or belittle can actually become our teachers, pointing us to the deeper places within us. I had that experience not long ago reading a little book. It was called Seasons of a Lifetime by Gerhard Frost. And in one of his poems, he, uh, he reflects about being back in fourth grade. You know, Mom, your world is pretty nice compared to going to recess. Do you remember the terror that recess can hold for a child? In the classroom, everybody has their place. Everybody has their own table and chair. Everybody has a little square on the floor. But at recess, you're on your own. Friends huddle together and talk. Teams are picked for whatever the game, and somebody is chosen last, and some people never at all. Recess can be the most ungraceful time of the day. Maybe that's why uh, I used to say to our youngest daughter, Mariah, every time she came home from school, who did you have lunch with? because I can still remember the feeling of walking into the cafeteria and wondering, who will I sit with? I remember this as an adult. When I was a youth minister in Birmingham, I used to go to Berkshire Middle School to sit with some of our middle school students at lunchtime. And I can remember the feeling of walking into the cafeteria as an adult, wondering, will any of these kids who do know me admit it? and standing there with all of those junior high feelings just welling up inside of me again. From the day of our birth, when somebody cut that umbilical cord that connected us to our mother, life has been marked by separation. Some theologians today call that separation alienation. Some call it estrangement. This sense of being cut off from the very source 
of life. It's what I think Adam and Eve must have felt when you remember they were driven out of the Garden of Eden. Adam, which literally means human being. Eve, which literally means all living things. So you see, the story of Adam and Eve is not the story of the first two human beings. It's the story of every human being. It's your story and my story. It's a story of separation from each other and from God. We experience that sense of separation on a human scale, sometimes even in our own families, among the people who we love the most. But we also experience that sense of separation from God. And that separation is the root of what we call sin, though most of us tend to use that word in the plural, sins. And um, our list would include I don't know, broken commandments and taboos and these specific wrongdoings. But all of those are simply symptoms of a much deeper estrangement, a different brokenness. And that is shared by people not only who call God God, like Christians like us, that is shared by people who call God by very different names. We all experience that separation, that yearning for reunion at some level. This search for reunion, this desire to bridge um, the chasm between us and God, it is at the very heart of the spiritual journey. And for each of us and all of us, the very heart of the gospel, what makes this good news is the promise that that chasm has already been bridged. That reunion is not only possible, that it has been accomplished. It's amazing grace for the ungraceful. In John's Gospel this morning, we hear these powerful words of Jesus about being set free. So imagine, imagine that feeling, the anxiety of standing by the wall all alone at the dance. Imagine that uncomfortable feeling of standing on the outside of that conversation that you're not really a part of at the party. Imagine that feeling of being on the playground and wondering if you will be chosen. And then let the freedom of God's yes wash over you. You are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. With you, I am already well pleased. And then alongside that gospel comes Paul's letter to the Romans. He says, everyone has sinned. Everyone is far away from God's saving presence. Everyone. I do things that I know are wrong. More often, I don't do things that I know are right. For, for Paul, you see, it is the law, it's the Torah that makes us aware of our separation from God. Through the law, he says, comes the knowledge of sin. So, for example, the minute that we think we have succeeded in honoring our parents, we remember that we have, on the other hand, spoken hurtful words to somebody else. I feel confident that I haven't stolen anything, but then I remember how much I covet something that somebody else has. Maybe their money, but maybe a relationship. 
Maybe their gift for dancing. Something inside of me keeps saying, I will never be good enough. I'll never be a good enough parent. I'll never be a good enough spouse. I'll never be a good enough pastor or doctor or teacher. I will never be a good enough person. And if for just a moment you get beyond those feelings, there are any number of advertisements that will remind you you are not skinny enough or welcome or wealthy enough or bright enough. We hear the laughter, the noise of life all around us convincing us that we are not good enough. Of course, Paul doesn't stop there, right? Everyone has sinned and is far away from the saving presence. But by the free gift of God's grace, all are put right with him through Jesus Christ who sets them free. In other words, in Jesus, God has already bridged the gap. Nothing you can do can make God love you any more than God already does. Nothing you will ever do will be able to keep him from loving you. Nothing you can do, nothing you can do. We are saved by God's grace. And for my money, we are more uncomfortable with that word saved than we even are with the word grace. We do it yourself. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Self-made, self-actualized men and women. It sounds so old-fashioned, doesn't it? We're really not that much different from those who came to Jesus in John's Gospel this morning, the religious types, especially the religious types. Um, we're descendants of Abraham. We don't have to be set free. We don't need to be saved. We're the chosen people. Our modern arguments don't sound very new. We're not the first generation to insist that we don't need to be set free. We don't need to be saved. Nor are we the first to sense this estrangement from ourselves, from each other, or from someone beyond ourselves. We are not the first, but I do think perhaps um, we have a little more, our separation feels a little more acute for us than it may have felt for some of our ancestors. For example, the continuity of growing up in the same community where your parents or your grandparents grew up, the nearness of extended family is gone. Our older daughter Molly is about to give birth in Miami. They know no one there. Or knowing that life will be better for our children than it is for us. We used to assume that, but we can't anymore. Or believing that hard work for the company will ensure a lifetime of employment. Tell that to any millennial today. Or living in the midst of COVID. Will we ever be reconnected to our co-workers or to members of our church family? You can add your own experience to that long list of stabilities that have just disappeared. It is harder now to find security in the place that we live. It is harder to find it in our jobs since we might lose it next month. 
or even in the church, where we are in the midst of this huge transition. Our sense of separation is very real, even if we may be uncomfortable with this whole notion of being saved. This longed-for reunion, it just doesn't go away. The fear of not being good enough keeps nagging, even if we do remember that somebody asked us to dance just last week. This is what makes the self-help department at Barnes & Noble or on Amazon the most popular department. How to find a man, how to be successful, how to make more money. What must I do to overcome my ungracefulness? And the gospel's answer is nothing. I know that's hard to sell. It may be even harder to believe. But this is the heart of the gospel. This is what makes grace amazing. This is the grace that finally got through to Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he was alone in his study. Luther, who had spent his whole life never being able to find peace with God. Will I ever pray enough? Will I ever do enough? Will I ever be enough? And who never realized that he was being asked to dance. But one day it happened to him, right there in his tower study, he experienced God's grace for the ungraceful. This is the unexpected gift for those who stand against the wall waiting to be asked. And even for those who are dancing their hearts out on the middle of the stage and are not even aware that something is missing. Over 50 years ago, Paul Tillich, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, preached these words about a grace that we can no longer even imagine, the grace that we don't think we need because we have it all and we can do it all by ourselves. He said, you are accepted. You are accepted by that which is greater than you, the name of which you do not know. Do not ask the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens, we experience grace. We experience moments when we can accept ourselves because we know that we are accepted by something greater than ourselves. Someone is inviting you to dance. And you don't have to worry about knowing the steps because it's grace for the ungraceful. Can you quiet the protests in your mind long enough to hear that deep word of acceptance? Can we forget that we don't need to be saved? Can I stop clinging to the wall and feeling awkward and afraid and embarrassed about who I am? You will know this truth, and the truth will set you free. 
but I'm already free. I don't need to. Shh, says Jesus. Come and dance. Come on and dance. Amen.